2: And the prophet Isaiah, over 700 years before Jesus was born, prophetically declared the coming of our Savior in these words that you're perhaps familiar with. I'm sure you've seen them on Christmas cards. You've heard them in Christmas messages. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And, of course, that final title, say it with me, Prince of Peace. Isaiah saw prophetically into history, into the future and said, there's coming one who will be the prince of peace. Now, a prince is a representative of king. It's the son of a king. And so when there was the declaration that the prince of peace was coming, that was the son of God, the son of the father coming down from heaven to earth to bring peace to us. We see this very thing announced as well at the time of Jesus' birth as the angel declared these words to the shepherds in the fields nearby Bethlehem in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. There is the word again, peace to those on whom His favor rests. Isaiah prophesied the coming of the Prince of Peace. The angels declared the fact that the Prince of Peace had been born near Bethlehem. And that wonderful day over 2,000 years ago, the birth of our Lord, the advent of Jesus, peace came to earth. Peace is possible for you. For you to experience peace in your life, you have to make some choices. You have to receive it. It's one thing to have a gift offered to you. It's another thing to actually take out your hands and receive that gift and to make it yours. So it's not just enough for God to offer you and me the gift of peace. We must take it. We must receive it. That's what Paul is talking about in Colossians 3.15 when he said, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. He says this is something you must let happen in your life. You must let God's peace in. You've got to open up the door of your life and and welcome peace into your heart. Now, how do we do that? We're looking in this series in the practical ways that you and I can actually open the doors of our heart, the doors of our life to experience this wonderful gift called peace so that the prince of peace can actually rule in you. And today I want to focus in on one particular issue in life that can oftentimes keep you from peace. And the one main theme is that if we're going to have peace in life, we have to get rid of guilt. We must get rid of guilt. There are a variety of things that will rob your peace. Once you've obtained it, you have to protect it because these things can steal it from you. And one of those things is guilt. Sometimes it's the shame that comes to our life. Let me describe for you just for a couple of moments the basic aspect of what guilt is according to the Bible. Guilt is the internal awareness of either a real or perceived violation of a law, a moral, an ethic. You feel a sting on the inside when you have done something that you know to be wrong or believe to have been wrong, and there's a moment inside you, down in your soul, deep in your being, where this this lack of peace happens. There's this internal moment of saying, something's amiss, something is wrong. That little feeling on the inside is affecting something called your conscience. And to have your conscience rightly prepared by the word of God is a wonderful thing. And to have guilt in your life when we violate the law of God is a wonderful thing because at its basic nature, guilt is good. Guilt is simply a warning signal in your life that you are off course in some way. But if you will address guilt in the right way, it's dismissed, it's removed from you, and you can move on in life. But here's the problem. Often, we don't deal with guilt the right way. We either ignore it or we just let it eat away at us. And what happens with guilt if you don't handle it the right way? Is it ferments into shame and ferments into condemnation and all kind of low self-esteem and all kind of horrible things that start happening to us, not only spiritually, but psychologically as well. And so guilt begins to eat away at your soul if you don't handle it God's way. And so we must learn how to handle it the right way. And God and the word of God has given us a clear description of how to handle guilt. Now, this handling of guilt is presented to us in two dimensions in the Bible. One reflection on it is found in the Old Testament and another is found in the New Testament. Let's go to the Old Covenant for a moment, the Old Testament. How did people who sinned against God in the Old Testament, how did they deal with their guilt? How did they get rid of it? What was God's plan for helping them to deal with guilt? Let's go to Leviticus chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Here's part of the story. There are many verses we could look at, but here's two that I'll give you. When anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. As a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for them for their sin. Now go down to verse 14 with me. The Lord said to Moses, When anyone is unfaithful to the Lord by sinning unintentionally in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, they are to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect and of the proper value in silver, according to the sanctuary shekel. It's a guilt offering. So we see in the first section we read a sin offering. Now it's talking about a guilt offering. They must make restitution what they failed to do in regard to the holy things, pay an additional penalty of a fifth of its value, and give it all to the priest. The priest will make a atonement for them with the ram as a guilt offering, and they will be forgiven. So here's how it worked in the Old Testament. When you sinned in the Old Testament, you had to make a sacrifice. You would get one of your animals, a sheep or a goat or a ram. If you living in poverty or did, had no means to provide for a goat or a ram or a lamb, what you would do is bring a dove offering or something of that nature to the temple, to the to the priest, and you would provide it to the priest and watch that animal laid up on the sacrifice where the life of the animal would be taken in your place. Why? Because sin always deserves to be punishment, punished. There's a, Anytime there's a breaking of the law, there's the punishment of the lawbreaker. That's called justice, right? Justice is when you break the law, you pay the penalty for breaking the law. And so when there was justice, the justice system of the Old Testament was if you violated a law against God, you had to bring a sacrifice and that sacrifice was an animal and you watched their blood being shed. You watched them die in your stead. It was a substitution for your sin. The problem was it never completely washed away that guilt that you felt on the inside. It was a part of the process, but it didn't work very well. It was temporary, leading to something more permanent. It is a temporary system that God put in place to lead us to the final sacrifice for sin. That is Jesus Christ. So the old was preparing us temporarily for the new so that in time and history, God in just the right time would send his son into the world to become the sacrifice for our sin. The lamb of God who went to the altar called Calvary and shed his blood so that we can now be truly and completely forgiven. That's the story of the gospel, that Jesus became our one and only and final substitute. We don't offer animals any longer because Jesus was offered as the Lamb of God, perfectly God and perfectly man on behalf of you and me. So let's go to the book of Hebrews and let's see what Hebrews says about guilt now and how we handle it. Now, the book of Hebrews does a fantastic job. The writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does an incredible job in helping us to see the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, the fulfillment of Jesus, what he came to do for us. Let's just look at a few verses here. Verses 1 and 2, Hebrews 10. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. So in essence, the writer here is saying, It just didn't work very well. It didn't work to completely cleanse people of their sins. It was temporary, pointing to the coming of the permanent solution in Jesus. Now, verse 18 of that same chapter. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death... Why is this so important? There's an amazing story in Scripture that you're familiar with. It's in John chapter 8. I'm not going to read this passage to you. I'm simply going to tell you the story. But it really helps you to see Jesus' perspective toward people who've messed up. It's a story of a group of men, actually religious leaders called Pharisees. Back in those days, they were the religious leaders of the Jewish nation. And so they were were wanting to trick Jesus. They were trying to diminish His value before the people and discredit Him in some way. And so they thought, here's how we can get Him. Let's let's see how He deals with someone caught in sin. So they found a lady who had been caught in the act of adultery. And so this lady was not just accused of adultery. She had been caught in the very act. And so they drug her out of the bedroom, if you will, into the presence of Jesus and threw her down at Jesus' feet and said, Jesus, what are you going to do to her? The law demands that she be stoned. And very likely, all of those Pharisees had stones in their hands ready to do so. Jesus, what are you going to do now? Their thought was, we've tricked him. How is he? This is the one that preaches grace and, and mercy. And now he's facing the, 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 the demand of the law for justice. What will he do? And Jesus does something very powerful in that moment. The Bible says that Jesus bent down. Is so valuable because what you see is this. Where was the lady at that point in time? The lady was on the ground. So where did Jesus go? He went to where she was Isn't that good news today that if you're down and you can't make it to Jesus, he always makes it to you, doesn't he? Isn't that good to know? OK, he makes it right where you are. OK, and he got right down where this lady was right in the in that moment and met her in her environment. And he looked at the, the men that were surrounding with rocks, with stones in their hand. And then Jesus does something. That was also very interesting. He took his finger and began to write in the dirt. What did Jesus write in the dirt? There's speculation, many different ideas of what Jesus wrote. Perhaps the most popular speculation and one that I'd hear too is that Jesus began to write the names of all the Pharisees that were standing there with rocks in their hands. And he began to write down their sins. Why do I believe that? Because he went on to say, He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. So it is likely that Jesus was writing for all the group to see the sins of those men that were standing there as well. And the Bible says that one by one, Those men left from the oldest to the youngest. And finally, the the spotlight comes down to two people, Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Now, what is going to happen at this moment? Jesus looks at the lady and says, woman, where are those that are accusing you? Where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Did you hear that? What did Jesus say? Neither do I. What was the word again? I'm not here to ground your face in your failure. I'm not here to condemn you. Go your way and do what? Sin no more. See, it's a very important moment because Jesus said, I didn't come to drive you down. I came to pick you up. So, how do we deal with this thing called guilt? How do we have cleansing from our past failures? How do we get beyond these regrets? What are we to do? And the Apostle John in, in the Gospel or the letter of 1 John writes these words for us in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Let me give them to you. Get your pen ready to circle some phrases. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess, if we confess our sins to Him, He is, circle the phrase, to Him, He is faithful. And just to forgive, circle the word, forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, circle the word, all unrighteousness. So the words are circled, confess him, forgive, and all. Those are key words. The scripture says here, how do we deal with guilt when we've messed up? We are to confess our sins to him, confess. The Greek word that's used here is the word homologeo. And the word homologeo means same word. That's what it means. Same homologeo word. What that means is this, when you confess your sin, you are homologuing, if you will. You're saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Confession is saying, God, you're right about what you say is wrong with my life. That's what confession is. And the Bible says that we're to confess our sin to him. That's the next word I wanted you to note there. If you're going to experience forgiveness, there's really only one that can actually forgive you. And there's really only one priest that you need to experience forgiveness from. And that's Jesus, the high priest. He's your forgiver. See, man cannot forgive you of sin, but God can. He is your forgiver. And so you confess your sins to him, and he is faithful and just to forgive. There's your next word to forgive. What does that mean? Obviously, it means to wipe away what's been done wrong. It's to let go of an offense. It's to wipe away the slate of something that's been marked against you. But with God, it's more than that. God, when he forgives, also does something that you and I are incapable of doing. That God, when he forgives, he also forgets. He remembers your sins no more. When we forgive, Someone, We have a hard time forgetting it. We might forgive, but we don't forget very easily. But God says, when I forgive you, I also forget it. I purposely choose to mark it out of my memory so that when you bring back to God something that God has already forgiven you for, it would be legitimate to understand that God says to you, I don't remember what you're talking about. I can't recall what you're referencing. Because he forgives and he forgets and he cleanses us from all. That's a key word, all. Just to make sure you understand the word all. All means all. All wickedness. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, I'm glad that's in the Bible. We have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of all the world. What an amazing thing to understand that Jesus came to bring us that forgiveness. How do we step into the forgiveness of God? How do we actually find freedom from guilt? Let me give you seven things as we're wrapping up here today. Number one, you've got to put your faith in and turn your life over to Jesus. That's where it starts. You can't experience forgiveness without knowing the forgiver. Number two, when you sin, anytime you sin, anytime there's this guilt in you of something you've done wrong, here's what you do. You go to God quickly. You go to God immediately. Number three, honestly and specifically confess your sins to God. Be honest about what you've done wrong and be specific about it. God, I'm telling you exactly where I sinned against you. Own up to it. Own your sin, own your failure, own your mistake. And then number four, check your intentions about future sin. What did you learn from your failure? Let me talk to you about intentions just for a moment. A lot of folks want forgiveness, but they don't want to change. And so the idea is, okay, God, forgive me. And while they're asking forgiveness, their intention is to go do the very same thing the next day. Forgive me now, and they know in their mind I'm going to do it again tomorrow so they live this perpetual asking for forgiveness without ever having any intention to change their behavior. That is not real confession. Real confession always involves an element of repentance. Repentance means I want to change. My intention is I don't want to keep going down this pathway, God. I'm sorry for what I did. I don't want to return. I want to get up and go my way and sin no more. And so check your intention. What are you learning about yourself and about your relationship with God from your failure? Then number five, accept God's promise of forgiveness. He promised that if you will confess your sins, he said, I will forgive you. And so you say, God, I accept by faith this promise. I believe that what you say to me is true. And then number six is a key here. Must forgive yourself and others. Many times when we've made mistakes, when we failed in some way, it's not just a matter of thinking, will God forgive me? I think perhaps many of us know that God is a forgiving God and. We have an awareness that God is willing to forgive us. But the problem is, we will not forgive ourselves. Dear one, know today that if you have messed up any place in your life, that you've made big time mess ups, big problems, you've sinned against God, whatever it might have been, or smaller things, whatever it is in your life, when you go to God, He forgives you. And now you must say, now, I forgive myself. I let go of this. And then in addition, you have to forgive other people. Because sometimes other people have a part to play in what you did that was wrong. The final step in this process, as we're looking at it today, as you get up and confidently move forward with God. Don't stay down, get up. Amen? Anytime you fall down, go to God quickly. Own up to your issues. Check your intentions, accept God's promise, forgive yourself and forgive others, and then get up and move forward. Every time you fail, don't fail backwards, fail forward. There's a final story I want to draw your attention to that I think brings all of this together. It's a story that Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read it in just a moment because the story does a fantastic job in laying out what we're talking about today. It's a story of a man who had two sons. One of his sons came to him one day with a very unusual request. His younger son made a request for his inheritance. Let's pick up the story in verse 12. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in while living. Very bad decision. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, there was a moment when this young man realized, I have messed up. And by the way, folks, you will never turn in a fresh direction until you come to your senses and realize where you've messed up. But there was this moment that he realized he came to his senses and he said to himself at home, even the hard servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I sinned against both heaven and you. That's called confession. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with anger and rage. Is that what it says? No. Filled with love and compassion He, the father, ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Let's stop there for a moment. This story, while it's about a father and a son, it's not just about a father and a son. It's about God and us. That's really the essence of the story, and it's pointing to us the reality, pointing out to us the reality of the kind of father God is to us when we come running back to him after a failure. And so now picking up in verse 21, his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. Read the last phrase with me. So the party began. Don't you like that? This is the love of a father. And I want to point out to you today that Jesus came as the Prince of Peace so that you could have peace. And part of peace is the forgiveness of your sins that you can know that you are guilt-free, that you do not live under the curse of shame and condemnation. Jesus came to free you and to allow you to experience a complete sense of forgiveness. Today, would you receive the gift that Jesus gave to you, the gift of peace, the gift of forgiveness.
1: You've been listening to the teaching ministry of practical living with Dale O'Shield, senior pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. If you would like more information, please visit our website at church-redeemer.org. May God bless you and make you a blessing.
0: Welcome to a minute of minute-